You are listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, the Quiz Show Show with audience participation. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores issues of science, critical thinking, and secular humanism. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at lueepodcast.com. All right. So I'll be your host today. My name is Ashley Noble, and today on the show we have Lauren Bailey. Hi. Jam Newman. Hello. And Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. So we have each prepared a quiz. No one has told me what their quiz is about, and I have not <laughs> told anybody what my quiz is about. Despite me asking like 10 times last <laughs> night. So uh, I am going to roll a d4. And we're going to go one, two, three, four, whichever number comes up. That is the quiz that goes first. Oh, it's a virtual uh, D4. Two. So my, my <laughs> quiz is first. I, I, I didn't cheat. Uh, we would also like to have an audience member. Uh, we're going to switch it up in between each one. And you are going to be responsible for carrying the score for the whole audience. So hands up who wants to be our first audience member. Today, I'll, let's maybe tell them the quiz topic before they come up. So Sure. sure. We, so my quiz is all about color. Any takers? Gonna start voluntolding someone. <laughs> so, so the way I figured that we could do this is the audience member could come up and have a seat, and when it is the audience's turn to vote on their answer, because we're all going to provide answers, right? Then that audience member can take advice from the audience, and then they can decide whether to take that advice or go, go their own <laughs> go way. Their own way. <laughs> it's not a direct democracy, it's a representative democracy. <laughs> do that. You took the jokes right out of my segment without even reading them. <laughs> Every show. You two are basically the same person when it comes to jokes and puns and all of those things. We have almost the same haircut. <laughs> Where right. Kent, get in the chair. Oh, that's very ominous. All right. Question number one. What types of cells in the eye are primarily responsible for color vision? Triangle cells, cone cells, photosensitive retinal ganglion cells, or rod cells? Uh, let's start with Lauren. I really want to start singing the Triangle Man song, but I'm going to go with rods. Uh, I'm going to go with cones. I'm also going to say cones. The only thing I know is that mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I remember go that. Cones. Go with cones. cones. I think rods. Cones. 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 The long one. No, wait, I can't. No. <laughs> the non-selected one sounds a bit made up, so. Uh, okay, we'll say rod. All right. Uh, the correct answer is cone cells. Uh, rod cells are more responsible for low vision light, but they're very bad at seeing color, which is why we have a hard time seeing. I always confuse them. Yeah. Because as soon as I said rods, I'm like, no, go! <laughs> so we have a hard time seeing color in low light. Uh, photosensitive retinal ganglion cells, I did not make those up. There, <laughs> they are apparently three different kinds of cells that see some sort of vision in the eye. So they discovered this with uh, rats that were... So they didn't have cone cells or rod cells, but they still responded to light. 
and they found these photosensitive retinal ganglion cells, uh, which only respond to photons, but it's sort of just an on or off thing, so they can't really tell much other than there is or is not light. Alright, so Jem gets a point, Laura gets a point, and audience gets a point? No, you no. said Roz. <laughs> Alright, question two. Humans can perceive light in a limited range of wavelengths. What is the approximate range of human vision in nanometers? Is it A, 850 to 1200 nanometers, 275 to 800 nanometers, 100 to 500 nanometers, or 490 to 700 nanometers? These are all approximate. 490 to 700 was the last one? Right. It's that one. (laughs) (laughs) Laura? I'm also going to go with that one. Okay. I know you said words. <laughs> there are lots of numbers in there, too. Number, numbers are words when they come out of your face. <laughs> well, Jem seemed really certain. I'm not going to try and game the system. <laughs> okay, we'll go with the last one, whatever it was. Okay, and Kent? And what was the... So they all said 490 to 700 nanometers. Just roll with E4, man. <laughs> From my limited study of meteorology, I, I, I can see the graph. <laughs> with a little colors bars going up, but um, I had like 0.5 stuck in my head, which maybe translates, maybe it's the wrong unit, right? Does anybody have any idea? It would be 0.5 micrometers. Would be yeah, that's what I'm thinking, 0.5. Well, yeah, so what is 0.5 micrometers? 0.5 micrometers would be 500 nanometers. Do you believe that? So if that's the conversion, yes, I'll go with that. Answer. Okay, everybody's going with D, 490 to 700 nanometers? You are all correct. I am currently studying chemistry and uh, <laughs> talked about the photoelectric effect on Thursday. <laughs> it's that one. <laughs> all right. I, I have that 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 uh, image in my head too, but it has numbers on it. <laughs> Perhaps Jim should give these his answer last. <laughs> we always rotate it to make oh, it fair. Yeah. Except the the audience went last both times there, right? Oh, well, I think yeah. the audience always gets yep. the audience yep. gets yeah. the advantage. I just we hadn't said that out, okay. out loud, so I just want audience uh, gets the advantage. Yeah. yeah. While I was doing research for this quiz, I discovered that there are real colors and there are also impossible colors. Real colors are colors that can be produced by a physical light source. Any additive mixture of two real colors is also a real color. So which of the following is a real color? A. Reddish green. B. Cyan. C. Bluish yellow. Or D. Octarine. (laughs) We're starting with Laura. So which one is? Which one is a real color? Okay, I don't even know what octarine is. (laughs) I'm imagining like it's nectarine colored, maybe? It's the eighth color. It's the color of magic. It's the color of magic. (laughs) An eight-sided nectarine. That's what it is. Oh, that'd be delicious. Go with that. I'll I'll just go with octarine because I don't know. Okay. Cyan? Okay. Uh, Cyan is real, yes. (laughs) Audience. Just the word association. I, I think of the Crayola box, and I don't know if I'm imagining a cyan or Cyan's was that burnt sienna? Yeah, yeah. Cyan is in the box. Yeah, yeah. 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 See. Yeah. Cyan. <laughs> All right, cyan is correct. Uh, so that's Jim, Lauren, and audience. Yes, uh, octarine is the color of magic from the Terry Pratchett Discworld book. Um, (laughs) reddish green and bluish yellow are what are called impossible colors so they're opposite on the wheel opposite ish 
And uh, so there are YouTube videos where you can supposedly trick yourself into seeing reddish green or bluish yellow by sort of antagonizing the receptors in your eyes that are supposed to see one or the other. Uh, you can also see these colors apparently by staring at like a really bright color and then looking at the opposite color. It can sort of superimpose so you can see these impossible colors. But from one light source, it is impossible to see reddish green. It's brown. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What is the difference between purple and violet? Is it A... Violet is a spectral color with its own wavelength on the visible spectrum of light, while purple is a composite color made by combining red and blue. B. On the color wheel, violet is closer to red and purple is closer to blue. C. The only difference is linguistic. Or D. RGB displays can create monochromatic violet light, but not monochromatic purple light. Jam again, I believe? Hey, hey, me. No? Well, according to a friend's art professor, there is no purple and there is only violet and you may not mention purple in her class. Yep. (laughs) Um, But I'm going to go with the first one. I can reread the options at any time. So the the second one was purple is closer to red and violet is closer to blue? Uh, Violet is closer to red and purple is closer to blue. Oh, that seems wrong. Um, yeah, like I, I feel like the first one, and also maybe all of them. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with Lauren here. The first one. Okay. What is the first one again? <laughs> Violet is a spectral color with its own wavelength on the visible spectrum of light, while purple is a composite color made by combining red and blue. I don't know. I kind of want to just go with linguistic. I'm gonna go with linguistic. Okay. Roses are red. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's not going to help. See, violets are blue. Violets aren't red. Yeah. <laughs> Audience? A. Linguistics. Linguistics. A. Oh. Show of hands, guys. Yeah, show of hands. A. And, and the confidence there. Okay. A. And C. Oh, what about linguistics? We're saying A. Oh, they're, they're even. They're even. <laughs> and they're, they're... People are screaming A more. I, I think the linguistics covers A as well. Yeah. That doesn't work well. colors? Yeah. Red, all the way up to indigo and violet. Yeah, it goes Roy G. Bip. A, he says A, and I believe him. Okay, so you're going A? Yes. Okay, A is correct. So purple is a sort of a combination of two different colors that each have their own wavelengths, but violet has its own determined wavelength on the spectrum. Or range of wavelengths. Uh, you, you were correct to be confused because I didn't mix up on B. Violet is closer to blue and purple is closer to red. So Damn I, straight. I, I switched those to make a wrong answer. And also, I, I can't believe nobody called me on this, the RGB displays thing. So RGB stands for red, red green, green, and blue. blue. Those are the three monochromatic colors it can create. I think we called you on it as nobody ever thought that True, was True, but I can't believe Jem didn't, wasn't like... Bah! <laughs> all right uh so i need to give who a point here uh, everybody but me all right laura's just going to take the opposite standpoint well i still stand by it is in real usage <laughs> it is linguistic that's at fair. best that's fair. all right but we're pedantic i know but, but the rules of the speech game in this context, <laughs> means that linguistic means a nonsense difference. Whereas A means 
something that maps on to reality. I suppose. I'm a descriptivist or a prescriptivist. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There you go. I believe it is also French for violent. <laughs> I'm just happy that somebody else outside of our little group gets to see Laura's podcast face. <laughs> That's the one. That's, That's the one. <laughs> Whenever Jem and I, Jem or I, starts on a. A tangent. No, I'm pleasant for you. (laughs) (laughs) Until it's 11 o'clock, you're like, get out of my house. Pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) All right, here's a nice simple question. Why is the sky blue? Is it A, because of reflections from the ocean? B, oxygen and nitrogen scatter blue wavelengths more widely, so more blue light gets to our eyes. C, all other wavelengths are absorbed by particles in the atmosphere, so only blue gets through to our eyes. Or D, all wavelengths reach our eyes equally, but because our eyes are more sensitive to blue, we perceive the sky to be blue. Newman. B. Yeah, the oxygen and nitrogen one, that was B, right? Yeah. Yeah. Let's go with that. Audience. From my limited <laughs> I believe that is correct. Yeah. Yay! Everybody knows why the sky is blue. Yay. It is called Rayleigh scattering. It is. Although I did hear the first one growing up. Yes, I did. I, I heard that one a lot, too. Wouldn't it be like brown or green over yeah, like yeah. we don't have we don't have blue water here. It breaks down pretty quickly when you think about it critically. <laughs> I was three. <laughs> Indigo was once one of the most precious dyes in the world. It is difficult to dissolve and requires a multi-step dyeing process. A synthetic version is still used today as the color used to dye most blue jeans. So there's a lot of people here wearing indigo. When was indigo first used to dye cloth? So the oldest piece of cloth that we have that was dated you know we don't know for sure but this is the oldest piece we have was it 500 years ago 1000 years ago 3000 years ago or 6000 years ago laura it's gonna be fun you get to cut these pauses out of the yeah. podcast <laughs> lauren oh yeah lauren lauren does. Does. Uh, i do not edit this thing <laughs> oh that's a tough one i'm gonna say 3000 years ago i should know this but i don't it's either three or six. <laughs> six years ago. <laughs> six years ago. <laughs> Every other blue gene is just a figment. The seventies was yeah, an illusion. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the seventies was an illusion. Six thousand years ago. What was B? One thousand. Five hundred, one thousand, three thousand, or six thousand. Definitely more than five hundred. And I'm going to take the say. Uh, do I want to be safe or do I want to be interesting? Uh, <laughs> Those are definitely opposites. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I'd, I'd say either one or three, maybe. I think indigo is a flower, but that doesn't really help. Um, <laughs> 3,000 years ago, I guess. Okay. I'm inclined towards six because I know they had it in ancient times, and some dyes come from marine life, but I, I don't know. I don't think it was hard for them to come across. This Does anybody have any input? I'm inclined to say 6,000. I could be wrong, but I feel like the Egyptians had it wrong. That's part. Their heyday was, was, was more than 3,000 years ago. Yeah. I mean, That's why I'm inclined towards later. So, for the audience, I'll say 6,000 years ago. Okay. 6,000 years ago it is. <laughs> so the oldest uh, known piece of, uh, of indigo dyed cloth was found in Persia in 1994, I believe. So That's not 6,000 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was dated to 6,000 years ago. Uh, so that was oh. Lauren and audience. Well, as Ken Ham tells us, radiometric dating is nonsense, so you can't be sure. 
Well, I'm just glad that my, you know, historical textile wonk didn't fail me there. That one would have been hard to explain. One of the oldest green pigments was the patina that forms on copper called verdigris. It was often made by hanging copper plates in vinegar or distilled wine and then scraping it off. It has a beautiful and unique blue-green color that is widely used in paintings and manuscripts of the medieval age. Why did this pigment fall out of favor? So why is it not widely used today? It changed color if it wasn't sealed immediately. It could ruin other pigments that it came into contact with. It was acidic and ate holes through parchment. Or all of the above. <laughs> uh, who are we starting with? I think it's Laura. Laura? I'm going to go with all of the above. It's all of the above. <laughs> I feel like this is something that I know from reading books. And I just don't remember. <laughs> books? Uh, yeah. They're these things that you, that they're, they're electronic and you, you get like this. Oh, codices. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'll go with all of the above, I guess. It'll be boring. That's what I'm inclined towards. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, all of the above. It is all of the above. It is one of my favorite pigments because uh, it's difficult to study because most of the places where it was uh, put onto parchments, there's now just holes. <laughs> Uh, so one of the things that it used to be used for a lot of uh, was borders. So now instead of big pieces of manuscript, we have beautiful like square or round holes where there used to be paintings inside of them and now there is not. Um, <laughs> it was also uh, used in oil paintings. So an oil medium was one of the only ways that you could put it onto like a board and have it stay and not turn sort of brown. So instead, if you used it in oil medium, it would go on sort of a blue-green, and then it would turn gradually into this like beautiful green foliage color, and then it would stay that way. So that was the way that it was able to be used and not screw everything up. Uh, if you tried to use it with pigments that it wasn't compatible with, uh, everything would just sort of peel off the page. So it was beautiful, but it was very temperamental, and it's not widely used today. <laughs> I have some of it at home. <laughs> She's got a whole palette of dangerous paints made from minerals. They have little skulls on them. <laughs> it's really cool. Thanks, Jeannie. Did you uh, make your own verdigree? I did not, no. no. I purchased it from the Limner's Guild, just as a scribe a thousand years ago might have. Again, thanks, Jeannie. Yeah. <laughs> Limnersguild.com. Insects have different sensitivities to light than humans do. Because of this, certain colors of flowers are more common than others. What is the most common color for flowers to be, which also happens to be the wavelength many pollinators are most sensitive to? Is it orange, yellow, red, or green? Yellow. Boy, I was like, I know the answer to this, and then it was not one of the ones you... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Blue is right out. Orange, <laughs> yellow, red, or green? Right. Yellow, I think? Just thinking back to all the many flowers I've known. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yellow. Hello? Audience. Green. Most yellow. of the flowers are really boring, and you don't see them. <laughs> hmm. Are you colorblind, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> no, I just think the clover and uh, a lot of the... Uh, Clover has white flowers. Flowers we don't think of as flowers. Yeah. Yeah, clover flowers are not the clover leaves. Dandelions are yellow and they're always getting pollinated. That's a good point. You know, I think part of the key is when she said that it has to do with the spectrum that the insects see, and pollinating insects see in ultraviolet too. Yes. So when she says green and he's backing it up with green there, I'm thinking that might be the case actually. 
ultraviolet leading. Well, well, like so. So the definition of green is a specific nanometer definition that that we see as green, and right. that uh, yeah. So so like ultraviolet is um, has a shorter wavelength than uh, a higher frequency than uh, green. Infrared. Green is right in the middle. Infrared is on the opposite end of the yeah. spectrum. Yeah, so the two would create a great contrast. So is it a layman's definition of a flower like we think of a flower? In which case, I think yellow, right? Or is it things we're not thinking of? Well, you have to make the decision. (laughs) Yellow and green are right next to each other. Yellow. 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 Yeah, the audience and I say yellow. The audience and you are correct. Did did everybody say yellow? Yes. But in the immortal words of the great sage Harry Chapin, Flowers are red and green leaves are green. <laughs> Okie doke. Jeff, were you thinking white? No, I was actually thinking violet because I knew oh. that many insects in, can see in the ultraviolet oh, okay. spectrum. So yeah. I'm like, well, I'm sure a lot of things like are violet and ultraviolet as well. We're just not aware of the extra mm. ultraviolet. Yeah, apparently yellow by far worldwide the most common color for flowers. Blue is common. White, white would not actually be considered uh, a color uh, because <laughs> it is not an individual area on the spectrum. It is, I don't know if I'm stepping on any of your... Captain Pedantic. I was going to say it eventually. If he didn't, so. <laughs> All right, two questions left. Then you're off the hook, Ken. Two of the most common pigments for orange and orangey-yellow paints throughout history were orpiment and realgar. Both are also extremely toxic, and realgar in particular was even sprinkled around homes to ward off snakes. What gives both of these pigments their color and their toxicity? Is it mercury, lead, arsenic, or uranium? Oh, I think we're starting with gem. Oh, great. <laughs> um, Pick your poison, literally. Yeah. <laughs> what, what did you name them again? Orpimic and Railgar? Orpiment and, yeah, Railgar. Prince Railgar Targaryen. <laughs> R-E-A-L-G-A-R. Um, trying to think if there's some way that helps me, and I don't think that there is. <laughs> Orpiment. 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 O-R-P-I-M-E-N-T. Yeah. Ah, boy. I don't know. Arsenic. Let's go with arsenic. It was mercury, Mercury, lead, arsenic, and uranium. Change my mind. I'm going to go with lead. Okay. I'm going to go with mercury. Audience. Do we say arsenic? Yeah. Go with arsenic. We say arsenic. Yeah, I screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> so, the asked her to read it uh, enough times. Yeah. Jeff gets a point and the audience gets a point. Last question. Red hair is the least common naturally occurring hair color in humans. It is most often caused by two copies of a recessive allele on chromosome 16, which produces an altered version of the MC1R protein. This also usually results in an inability to tan and subsequent sensitivity to ultraviolet light. (laughs) (laughs) Approximately what percentage of humans have naturally occurring red hair? Is it 1 to 2%, 2 to 4%, 4 to 6%, or 6 to 8%? Laura. 1 to 2. I've heard 2%, but you said 2 to 4 and 1 to 2. I'm in the exact same boat. I was like, I know it's (laughs) 2. 2 to 4. No, no, 1 to 2. 1 to 2. 1 to (laughs) 2. Percent of which population? The human population? Human population. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm also going to go one to two. So if we do our math, what are we at? Seven point something billion, and we're going to go with Europeans, so we're going to go to a tenth of that, maybe, right? Mm-hmm. A little bit more than a tenth because of this continent, but I, I would say one to two, right? One to yeah. two. Yeah, everybody's got it. Yay. Everybody gets another point. So in 
Northern European populations, the percentage of redhead people can get up to 6%, but globally it is a little bit under 2% usually. Isn't All right. It, isn't it high in Ireland or something? That would be Northern Europe, yeah. Yeah. Those were hard. Pick me for state capitals or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, you did pretty well. Mm-hmm. Tabulating the score here. Yeah. So, Jem has eight points, Lauren has seven points, Laura has five, and the audience has eight. So, audience tied with Jem for the lead. I think we'll keep these going throughout the the rest of the quizzes. Yeah, I I just realized that the audience is going to have an advantage in that... Definitely. They did not not prepare a quiz for everybody, so they will answer four quizzes, and the rest of us will only answer three. At the end, they have to get together and make us a ten-question quiz. (laughs) Surprise! Did everybody read the email, do the joke, do their homework? Jem is next. All right, who's going to be the audience tribute this round? What is your quiz about, Jim? Okay. My quiz is about discarded scientific theories. I remembered and right. Ideas. Yes. You did. But I deleted history so that you could not confirm it. <laughs> because I know you were like, I thought you posted it in the Slack. And I'm like, I, I did. It used to it be It looks there. like Dylan is volunteering his tribute. Okay. So, uh, we're talking about discarded scientific theories and hypotheses. This game is played over ten rounds. Each round, I will name a discredited scientific idea, then provide three different definitions of it. I'll ask the panelists and our audience member here to decide which one is the real theory, not not the right theory, <laughs> but the definition that accurately describes the theory that I name. So I've randomly determined the starting order, and Ashlyn will be going first, followed by Lauren, then Laura, and then our audience delegate Dylan will go last each, each time so that uh, he can benefit from the wisdom of the panel, such as it is. <laughs> And the crowd. Yes. yes. Yeah. The panel the and the crowd. The madness of crowds, yeah. <laughs> Thanks to Charles McKay. Uh, okay. So our first question, uh, our discredited scientific idea is Terra Australis. A. This is the idea that the unique geology of Australia results in unusually common formation of ore rich in noble metals, which led to the Australian silver rush of the early 20th century and was later revealed to be a deliberate hoax. B. Terra Australis refers to a hypothesized massive continent proposed on the basis that the land masses in the northern and southern hemispheres must be balanced. Or C, it refers to the theory that the soil composition of Australia, New Zealand, and certain Southeast Asian countries is uniquely suited to dry land farming, that is to say, non-irrigated cultivation. Ashlyn. Um, I like the theory that... The land masses need to be balanced. Okay, Ashlyn goes with B. Uh, Lauren? I was also leaning towards B. Okay. Yeah, I was going to go with B. Audience? Definitely B. Do the masses agree? (laughs) Okay, B. Okay, B is correct. Everybody gets a point. Yeah, I just just made the other ones up. (laughs) They were long and pedantic, which is why we knew that. Yeah, but a lot of the other ones kept referencing Australia as a continent, or not as elsewhere. Yeah, the other two did, yeah. And Australia as a continent is derived from the older Oz term referring yeah. to the mm-hmm. south. Australis, uh, yes, refers to southern continent. Uh, Terra Australis would be southern continent. So um, everybody was quite surprised when Antarctica turned out to be a thing. Uh, <laughs> question two, steady state theory. Does it refer to A, 
The theory that the universe is not expanding, and that, though they still rotate and revolve, major celestial bodies are generally fixed in their neighborhoods. Or B, the theory that the universe's current expansion will eventually slow, then reverse, leading to a big crunch, which will be followed by a subsequent Big Bang, and that this cycle is infinitely repeating with no beginning and no end. Or C, does steady-state theory refer to the theory that while the universe is expanding, its overall density doesn't change because matter is being continuously created? We're starting with Lauren this time. The big crunch. It's the only one I've heard of. Okay, so Lauren's going with B. Laura. Oh, I liked that one. But what was the gist of the first one again? Uh, (laughs) The the universe isn't expanding. Things are generally fixed in their celestial neighborhoods. Permanent, if you will. I will not. I'm going to go with the last one. C? Yeah. Okay. Matter is being continuously created. And Ashlyn. Oh, see, I feel like B is a real thing that I've heard of, but I don't know if this that's the name of it or whether it's been discredited. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, C is the... There's a constant amount of stuff. It just keeps being... Uh, No, no. C is uh, the theory that the density of the universe doesn't change, but there is more matter being created all the time. So there is more stuff all the time, but its overall density is fixed. How would that work? Uh, I'm not saying any of these are right. I know, I know. (laughs) Which one of these is steady state? (laughs) I'm going to go with C. Ashlyn goes with C. Audience. A. 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 <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm glad the uh, constituents agree with my position. I'm going with A. With A. I think the audience okay. is going to scoop us. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, the actual answer is C. <laughs> the theory that while the universe is expanding, its overall density doesn't change because matter is being continuously created. So that is the steady-state theory that was developed by Herman Bondi, Thomas Gold, and Fred Hoyle. Uh, it was an early competitor to the Big Bang model, which is the currently accepted theory of the universe. Whether or not there will be a big crunch, which was referenced in B, is up for debate. It seems unlikely, based on uh, current measurements. The expansion of the universe currently appears to be accelerating, uh, which is attributed to uh, dark energy, which is essentially a a fudge factor. We don't know exactly where that energy comes from. There are a few hypotheses. But the uh, expansion of the universe appears to be speeding up. So that makes a big crunch unlikely, and that kind of cyclical crunch-bang, crunch-bang probably is not accurate. That's why I picked that one. (laughs) Uh Yep. So let's move on to question three. This theory is spontaneous generation. I thought you were going to say human combustion. I know. (laughs) Are you going to break into song too? There's a really good jazz song called Spontaneous Human Combustion. I'm I'm not kidding. It's great. Yeah. (laughs) God, now I just want to talk about spontaneous human combustion. Uh, New quiz. Yeah. Uh, Probably a result of the wicking effect, and it's super gross. It's getting edited out anyway. (laughs) We have so many more quizzes. Uh, Just put a link to an article on it. Okay, okay. (laughs) Jim's favorite phrase? It's in the show notes. (laughs) Yeah, it'll be in the show notes if I remember. Okay, so theory three, spontaneous generation. Is this A, the idea that non-living biochemical processes can lead to the natural formation of organic compounds, eventually resulting in nucleic acids and the beginnings of life? Or B... The idea that pregnancy does not result from sexual activity and that a child's mother is its only biological parent. 
Or C, the idea that certain pests and other lower forms of life, such as insects, arise naturally from inanimate detritus in the environment. I'll start with Laura. Hit C. Okay, Ashlyn. See, I feel like A and C are so similar, I want to pick both of them. Because both of them are basically animate stuff just comes out of inanimate stuff. Isn't, aren't they? Like, so the idea of A is that chemical processes can result in living oh, material. Oh, okay, then definitely C. It's like the peanut butter thing. Yes. Okay. <laughs> C. Uh, and audience. Hey, you didn't do Lauren yet. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Lauren. C. <laughs> audience. C. Uh, I'm going to go with the masses and say C. Okay, the collective has spoken. Okay. Yeah, uh, the spontaneous generation is C, the idea that, uh, that like insects and rats in some cases, pest creatures, uh, are just a natural byproduct of like garbage or that maggots are produced by dead flesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in some cases actually, uh, although this is sometimes separated out into a separate discredited theory, uh, the idea that parasites like tapeworms are actually generated by the human body when the body is in a state of disease. Um, it, it, spontaneous generation was synthesized by Aristotle and was debunked by, anyone know? Famous scientist? French scientist? Pasteur. Swiss scientist? Pasteur. Yeah, Louis Pasteur. Um, That's where he made the fancy glass. Exactly. Yep. That uh, thing whose name I forget now. Damn it. He uh, actually, Pasteur based his experiments on earlier experiments by Francesco Redi. Uh, can anyone identify the other two theories by name? First one I think is abiogenesis. Yep, yeah. abiogenesis or biopoiesis, the uh, the idea that uh, life arose from non-life. And uh, the second one, anyone? Asexual reproduction? <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the second one is just something I stole from Pat Rothfuss's uh, 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 second uh, second novel. And final. <laughs> yeah, he'll get there eventually, maybe. I don't no. know. He can't possibly fit the rest of that story into one book. The Wise Man's Fear and uh, The Name of the Wind are excellent books, and I recommend people read them. There will never be a third one. <laughs> and we cry. Okay, theory four. Maternal impression. And we're going to start with Ashlyn here. Is maternal impression A... The 18th century practice of divining a child's personality based on the shape and curvature of a pregnant woman's belly. Or B, the belief that certain birth defects and congenital disorders are the result of strong emotional stimulus in the pregnant mother. Or C, the belief that female intuition is stronger among women who are ovulating or pregnant. Hmm. B sounds like some Scientology bullshit. I'm going to go with B. Lauren. I'm also going to go with B. Laura? B. Audience? C. B is correct. Uh, This belief was common in the 19th century, uh, just like all sorts of other misogynistic uh, medical beliefs. Um, Yeah, you know, blaming the mother for uh, for the way their kids turned out uh, is... I don't know, something that's still going on, I guess. Uh, in fact, uh, Joseph Merrick, the famous elephant man, believed until he died that his condition was caused by the fact that his mother was knocked over and frightened by an elephant. Theory five is diluvianism. Ooh. Is it A, the belief that modern geological features are best explained by a literal global flood as described in Genesis 6 through 8? B, the theory that flooding in Roman provinces in the Fertile Crescent was a major contributor to the fall of the Western Roman Empire. 
Or C, the theory that the gradual concentration of salt and other minerals in the soil of floodplains kick-started early life on Earth. Lauren. A. Laura? I'm going to go with A, too. Ashra. I, I was like, hey, this has something to do with flooding, and then shit, they all have to do with flooding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm no fool. <laughs> I also believe it is A, though. I think it's A. Yeah. You? Okay. I was going to say C. <laughs> all right, I'll... I'll take A as the final answer. Okay. It is A. Everybody gets a point. We're going to break this somehow. Yeah. Diluvianism is also known as flood geology, and the other two are just things that I made up. As far as we know. Yes. Uh, Theory six. Phlogiston. No, spell that. (laughs) (laughs) Phlogiston theory. uh, P-H-L-O-G-I-S-T-O-N. Can you use it in a sentence? <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to use it in three. Phlogiston theory is A, a theory that holds that since light is a wave and waves are unable to propagate in a vacuum, space must be filled with an intangible substance through which light can travel. Uh, that being the phlogiston in question. Or Carol B... Syrup. Uh, the theory that some materials are flammable because they contain a fiery element known as phlogiston that is released during combustion. Or C, a theory describing the random motion of particles uh, or phlogistites in a fluid. Wow, this is ridiculous. And I get to go first on this one, right? Uh, no, this is Lauren. Uh, oh, okay. Laura first. Sorry. One of us has to change our name. Yeah. No! <laughs> So hard because these are all fake, but which one is the real fake? Like, oh. <laughs> the first one again? The space one. The space one. Oh, right. Right. Space uh, syrup. Light is a wave. I'm going to and... go with that one. Okay. Yeah. Ashlyn. Okay, so we have space syrup, uh, fiery <laughs> stuff, and the third one was? Uh, a theory describing the movement of particles suspended in a fluid. Like, it describes how they move and how they interact. See, there's the flow, but it's not... It's P-H. But it's po. Yeah, yeah. It's not po. See, I want to go with the space one, too, but Laura did that one. And this one is so ridiculous that we need to spread it out so somebody gets it right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with the fire one, B. Okay. Lauren. I'm just, like, equating it to Pokemon. We've got space syrup. We've got fire. <laughs> space syrup is a Pokemon type? Man. <laughs> Things have changed since I was playing Pokemon. Oh, and that one electric, because the other one's water, you know. We're spacing these out. All right. Do what you want. <laughs> I guess we'll space them out, so I guess that would be C, would be the only one that's not chosen. Yeah. The right. motion of particles in a fluid. Game in the game. <laughs> and uh, I, the gonna go Dylan. I know it's either A or B. C. <laughs> <laughs> that that type of contrarianism. <laughs> you bet, Dave. No, no, no. I, I know it's some discarded theory regarding that was replaced by a more scientific one in the 19th century, a more contemporaneously scientific (laughs) one. But it's... I'm trying to think if it's, like, white needing space to travel, or if it's flammable items needing its own... And I'm leaning towards the flammable. Which one was that? B. Remember, you don't have to side with the audience if you don't want to, but... Are there any arguments from the audience? <laughs> a or B, Dylan? A is a trick. Oh, yeah. B! B, uh, B. It, that's the flammable one, right? Yeah. B is the flammable one. B, flammable. <laughs> <laughs> okay, B is correct. Yeah! <laughs> 
Okay. Can anyone in the system audience? Yeah. <laughs> Can anyone tell me what the first op- option is actually called? I think Space I heard Earth. it. I think I heard it in the audience. Ether. Mar- ether. ether yes. Luminiferous ether, uh, Luminiferous. which is a different. <laughs> which is a different scientific theory that has also been superseded by our modern quantum mechanical understanding of light as uh, a wave-particle duality. And the last one is simply a description of Brownian motion, but I added phlogiston in there. <laughs> um, and uh, that is a real thing that actually happens, rather than the other two, which are fake things that don't actually happen. And while it didn't hold up to scientific scrutiny, you really can't beat the nomenclature of phlogiston theory. A material that contains phlogiston is called a phlogisticated substance. And as it combusts, the material deflogisticates. <laughs> the, uh, don't theory... you go blind doing that? <laughs> <laughs> the theory was actually also briefly referenced referenced in the fun seventh season episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, Thine Own Self, to which Data replies, I do not believe that is correct. <laughs> uh, it's also worth noting that the later and also discredited caloric theory proposed by Antoine Lavoisier uh, held that a quote, subtle fluid called caloric was the substance of heat. Some at the time argued that a cold was also a type of fluid called frigoric. Uh, these theories were superseded by our modern thermodynamic understanding of heat. Question seven. Theory seven. Telogeny. Is that A, the belief that a child can inherit traits not only from its father and mother, but also from previous partners that its mother has had? Or B, the belief that low-frequency EM radiation, including the wireless signals used by Wi-Fi and mobile devices, can adversely affect fetal development. Or C, the belief that pregnancy cravings are the result of telepathic communication between the mother and the fetus. That's amazing. Oh, Telogeny. That is a great... We're going to start with Ashlyn. Baby wants ribs. <laughs> <laughs> I know the first one is... Like a real thing that many cultures believe that uh, many partners contribute to the formation of the baby. So I'm going to go with that one. I'm going to go with A. Okay, Lauren? I am not going with the, you know, slut shaming. <laughs> no. no, it's not. No, no, like it's a positive thing yeah. usually in those cultures that many, many men usually will contribute to the well being of the baby because they're all their father. It's true. Um, I'm going to go with the baby wants ribs, number three. I'm going back and forth between. B and C there. Because B is a fake theory. I just don't know if that's what it's called. Game and the all system. those belly Game bands systems and crap like that that they try to sell people. <sighs> yeah, I'll go with B. Okay, the EM radiation one. And uh, Dylan? I think it's uh, the entire uh, reproductive history influencing the traits of a uh, offspring. Uh, so A. Okay. Uh, A is correct. So now I I thought it was interesting that little side discussion between Ashlyn and Lauren, um, because uh, telogeny, at least in recent European history, has been fairly horrendous. It has been a way of combining the sexism of maternal impression, discussed previously, what with women and their emotions being responsible for any problem with the baby, (laughs) um, with a whole lot of racism. What racism, you might ask? Well, uh, to quote from the Textbook of Human Physiology, 4th edition, published in 1888, quote, A white woman who has
has had children by a Negro may subsequently yeah. bear children to a white man, these children presenting some of the unmistakable peculiarities of the Negro race. Ew. So, uh, this argument, which often flies under the banner of racial hygiene, was deployed in Nazi Germany, and over the last decade, observers in post-Soviet Russia have raised concerns that these ideas are resurgent in the Russian Orthodox Church. And in Putin's government itself, with Anna Kurnetsova, the Russian Federation's children's ombudsman, endorsing this view. Oh, God. Yeah. Sounds a lot nicer uh, if it's like everybody's invested in this child. Yeah, I guess, I don't know, maybe I've read too many fantasy stories where that's the... The gist of it. Now, uh, the, generally speaking, the idea is not uh, is no longer uh, scientifically accepted uh, in mammals generally. However, there has been some recent research that you do get some gene transfers in insects. When yeah. you're doing experiments with fruit flies, you always have to make sure that the ones that you're breeding are virgins, because otherwise you might not know what the genetic makeup is because they, they hold on to sperm for so long. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, and that's what I was, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like, if some animals, because some ma- animals do hold on to it for longer, so then it could be yeah. the, the litter or whatever it's called <laughs> could be of mixed progeny. It's yep. called a baby. <laughs> <laughs> so that's enough of a tangent now. Yeah. Humans are not those animals, though. Okay, we're getting to the end. Theory eight, miasma theory. <laughs> is this A, we're going to start with Lauren here. Uh, is this A, the belief that disease was the result of night air and foul odors? Or B, the theory that children born when certain nebulae are visible in the sky will suffer ill luck? Or C, a theory positing that urban populations of the 19th century were hardier than their rural counterparts as a result of exposure to coal smoke, which had a, quote, salutatory effect? A. Lauren's going to go with A. Laura. I'm also going to go with A. Ashlyn. A. It's the theory that Jon Snow helps to discredit. I think it's A. A is correct, and yes, I'm aware that Jon Snow is (laughs) not just a character in George R.R. Martin's uh, Song of Ice and Fire, and was in fact a physician as well. (laughs) He knew nothing. Yeah. (laughs) He knew that miasma theory was incorrect. Let's go to theory nine. Physiognomy, or physiognomy, if you want to pronounce that G, which no. I don't. Is it A, Laura? The is it A, Laura? Uh, <laughs> physiognomy. <laughs> yeah. uh, is it the idea that a person's character can be accurately judged from their physical appearance, especially their face? B, the idea that the workings of the body are governed by the balance of four distinct bodily fluids: black bile, yellow bile, blood, and phlegm. Or C, the idea that the number of appendages in certain radially symmetric marine animals, such as cephalopods and sea stars, are, is determined by tidal pressures. What was the first one again? A person's character can be accurately judged by how pretty they are. I'm going to go with that one. That's horrifying. I can't believe you endorsed that idea. <laughs> uh, Ashlyn. I believe it is A, the... You can judge your personality by your face. Okay, Lauren. A. And Dylan. I'm going to go with A. With A? Okay. Do you agree? <laughs> He's dispensed with getting it. Yeah. <laughs> You're the delegate. You get to make the choices. Yeah. Um, it, it is indeed A. Physiognomy is also called anthroposcopy and is closely linked to eugenics and uh, phrenology. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned it in our eugenics, eugenics show. Yeah. People remember. The humorous theory. 
Uh, yes. So B is the uh, theory of bodily humans, humors, or <laughs> humorism. Bodily humans. <laughs> yeah, I, I made up the symmetric marine creature thing. Yeah, so physiognomy. It's wrong. Remember, you can't judge a person by its cover. Uh, unlike a book, which obviously you can and should judge by its cover. How else are you going to judge a book? What an absurd idea. Um, <laughs> and uh, our final discredited scientific idea, number 10... The plum pudding model, and we're going to start with Ashlyn this time, is that A, a geological model associating the distribution of certain ores with specific sedimentary layers. B, an early atomic model which held that the atom was a collection of negatively charged electrons held inside a spherical cloud of positive charge. Or C, a 16th century English dietary model, which championed the healthfulness of suet, <laughs> cognac, and dried fruit. Uh, so I guess I'm going to go with A again. You randomized them, but Lauren. randomness is clumpy. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what I'm fond of saying, yep. B, uh, which one is the electron in the positive cloud? That is B. I'll go with that one. Okay, audience. B, 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 B. Let's do a vote. Going, having heard from the constituency, <laughs> I am making the executive decision as a knowledgeable representative that it is B. That is B. Going the Parliament model. Yeah, that is B is correct. <laughs> so uh, I will quote J.J. Thompson, the originator of the theory. The atoms of the elements consist of a number of negatively electrified corpuscles enclosed in a sphere of uniform positive electrification. That's everybody here. How did we do? Lauren with seven. Ashlyn with nine. Uh, Laura with eight. An audience with nine. Oh, wow. I made it too easy. Uh, there, there were some other uh, discredited uh, scientific ideas that I didn't manage to work into my segment, including emission theory, which sounds kind of gross, but it's the idea that uh, vision is accomplished by rays of light that literally shine out of your eyes, which is an ancient Greek uh, belief. And rain follows the plow. Anyone heard of that one? So that's the uh, a 19th century theory of climate that was popular in both the American West and the Australian outback. Basically, places where indigenous populations were being displaced by white people at an alarming rate that held that homesteading and agriculture, as they are brought into arid regions, the climate mellows and becomes more humid. So agriculture actually brings rain. Uh, it's a weird form of agricultural manifest destiny. Okay. Take it away, Lauren. Hi. What is your quiz about? Well, I have a whole preamble, but Jem posted it at the start of the show. So <laughs> we've got some great energy in this room today. And you know what else has really great energy? Crystals! Yay! <laughs> okay, that's totally not true. But the pseudoscience about crystals perpetuates through both celebrity endorsements and some new age practices. So for my quiz today, I'm going to name and describe a crystal... And you have to guess part of the meaning from four possible choices, because there's so many different meanings for different crystals. <laughs> Fair warning, I'm using some obscure ones because that delights me. Okay. <laughs> so we've got our audience surrogate. We've got Scott here. He gave one of our talks here earlier at Skepticamp. All the meanings and quotes that I have in my quiz is pulled from crystalvaults.com. Your mileage may vary depending on the source that you follow or the phase of the moon or whatever makes the most money. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get started. Question one. Blue John fluorite is one of the oldest varieties of fluorite in the world. It's found only near Castleton in Derbyshire, England. 
Prized for its unique purple-blue and cream-yellow color, it also has distinctive veining and banding patterns created by filmy inclusions of petroleum millions of years ago. So, Blue John fluoride helps with A. Calming and easing depression B. Travel and personal growth C. Energy and new starts D. Easing the pain of broken bones Ashlyn Travel and personal growth Jim Depression, I guess, because it's blue Laura Broken bones Scott I'm also going to pick the depression one because it's easy to... It's not a solid... Uh, claim. Oh, I'm sorry. I should ask the audience. <laughs> uh, you, your your bullshit is fine. Okay. <laughs> it sounds like an airtight uh, heuristic here. All right, the, 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 the depression bullshit. B. Travel and personal oh, growth. Oh, damn it! I know personal growth is also pretty broad. <laughs> so Blue John stimulates spontaneity and emboldens ones to brave the unknown, both in physical travel and in the desire for new discoveries and fresh experiences. Blue John encourages altruistic pursuits, enkindles trust, and helps one make good decisions. Ooh, enkindles. Enkindles. <laughs> These are not my words. <laughs> it is a useful ally for getting oneself out of bad situations and can lend the courage needed to effect permanent change in one's lifestyle. That's that's a powerful crystal. <laughs> it's really cool looking, yeah. too. It's got stripes of blue and white. Wow. Question two. Ranging in color from light pink to light violet, kunzite is a stone of emotion connecting the heart to the mind and stimulating a healing communication between the two. In its palest pink form, kunzite is also known as A, the heart stone, B, the men's stone, C, the woman's stone, D, the crying stone. Jem. Probably not crying. Women are super emotional, and they only make decisions from their heart. So that would fit. Yeah, women's stone or heart stone? Women's stone. Why not? I don't know. Laura? Uh, heart stone. That was A, right? Yeah. Ashlyn? I want to say heart stone, but I think that's rose quartz, but maybe they're the same freaking thing because it's pale pink, so I'm going to go heart stone. Scott? I thought heart stone was almost maybe too obvious, so I, I was also with Jem thinking like woman's stone in that they're in touch with their emotions. Uh, what does the audience say? Men's stone. Men's stone? D. Uh, D was... Crying stone. Crying stone. Okay, well, so we'll keep it interesting and say men's stone. Okay. C, the woman's stone. Oh. <laughs> so Jem and Laura got that one? No, right? I no, just Jem. Just Jem. Oh, okay. So pink kunzite is often called the woman's stone, particularly supportive for a young or first-time mother and for all single mothers. And it assists humans as well as animal mothers who may have a hard time caring for their young. Boy. Question three. Picture Jasper. That's P-I-C-T-U-R-E, Jasper. Okay. I'm picturing Jasper. Go yep. on. <laughs> is a form of brown Jasper that is characterized by natural forming scenes and landscapes caused by veining and occlusions from petrified mud. It's, it's really real cool. Yeah. That does sound really cool. Picture Jasper does not, does not help with A, connection to the consciousness of the earth. B, protecting the holder during shamanic journeys. C, bringing forth hidden emotions to heal them. Or D, guiding the holder through dangerous terrain. It helps with literally everything else other than this one thing. Laura. Uh, it does not help guide you. Ashlyn. The shaman thing. Jim. I, f I feel like you wouldn't have included shamanic journeys 
if that weren't on there, so I think that, that must be a, a real thing. <laughs> we are playing D&D right now. Yeah. Keep that in mind. Um, I don't remember what the last one was, but let's go with the last one. <laughs> Audience. I was also leaning towards uh, D, the last one, that it would not help you, guide you through terrain, right? Is mm-hmm. that... Uh, that's that's what I'm leaning towards. But the rock has a landscape in it. That yeah, seems so it's too obvious. Like, uh, like uh, you know, homeopathy, where it does the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but so I'm leaning towards D. But uh, audience, it's all random, <laughs> yeah. right? Let's say okay. We'll give them all the D. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're not sorry. The I'm audience sorry. gets the D. Audience gets the D. Uh, and that is the correct one. Hey. You guys are too smart for me. I thought this one would be hard. But th- because this one had the three correct answers and the one not correct, we've got a gem length kind of explanation. I'll mm. try to keep it pretty quick. <laughs> Picture Jasper is characterized by masterful scenes and landscape patterns formed by nature and is believed to contain hidden messages from the past. It was revered in many cultures of the world for its deep connection to the earth, its protection during shamanic journey, and its ability to divine the land and the future. It is perhaps more closely connected to the planet than any other Jasper and is known today as the Stone of Global Awareness. (laughs) Highly attuned to the Earth's electromagnetic fields and energy systems, (laughs) Picture Jasper provides a remarkable ability during meditation to merge with the consciousness of the Earth. There's more to that, but I'm not going to get into it because we're short on time. A nurturing and protective stone, Picture Jasper brings comfort and alleviates fear. It instills a sense of proportion and harmony, enlivening one's creativity and initiative, and is a marvelous talisman for bringing hidden emotions to the surface for healing. Question four. An Inuit legend claims that Labradorite is a fallen portion of the Northern Lights. It is usually gray-green, dark gray, black or grayish-white, and is composed in aggregate layers that refract light as iridescent flashes of peacock blue, gold, pale green, or coppery red. Labradorite, when displayed in a workplace setting, A. Brings money to the business. B. Engages part-time and temporary workers with the company. (laughs) C. Helps office plants survive longer. D. Purifies the air. We use all of those in our office. Holy moly. Ashlyn, back to the top of the order. Purifies the air. Jim? I I like the idea that it's like some sort of, like, company engagement stone. (laughs) They're really pretty. They would draw people in. Yeah. uh, HR would like it to be B. Uh, I'll go with the one that engages temporary employees. <laughs> That's hilarious. Laura? Uh, I'm going to go with uh, makes plants live longer. Scott? That's also what I was thinking was makes plants live longer. That seems very holistic. Oh, come on, oh, yeah. just, go, just tell the spreads we get. Well, I'm not going <laughs> <laughs> to on that one. It's all bullshit. <laughs> well, Jem and his HR wins this one. Oh, oh my God. Wow. I did not think that was correct. That's so ridiculous. As a workplace stone, Labradorite brings out the best in people, making work life more congenial. It encourages courtesy and full attention to the customer and assists part-time and temporary staff in becoming fully involved in a company. It's the miscongeniality of rocks. It's really pretty. It is really pretty. I've got some big chunks of it. This site also sells stones, don't forget. Yeah. So so if you're a, a business and you want your uh, temporary term employees uh, who are not paid well to be really dedicated to you, don't give them job security. Just give them a freaking rock. <laughs> Question five. Purple jade is a variety of jadeite. It's one of two distinctly different minerals that share the name jade. The other, nephrite, or nephrite, is a calcium-magnesium silicate. 
Jadeite is a sodium aluminum silicate. It's hard and lustrous, it's rarer than nephrite, and usually more expensive. It occurs in various colors, and we're talking about the purple variety here, because each different color has its own interpretation. So purple jade is a stone of what feeling? A. Sadness. B. Ecstasy. C. Mirth. D. Anger. Laura? Mirth. Ashlyn? I would like the purple one to be ecstasy. Jim? <laughs> Ashlyn is my closest competitor, so I will go with ecstasy. I was also, I was going to go with ecstasy anyway. Audience surrogate. I was also going to say ecstasy. I believe purple is associated with that color. Yes? Ooh, we're going with color theory. <laughs> I know, right? Purple is associated with that color. That's what I <laughs> But what about violet? <laughs> Violet. Um, so I'll go with ecstasy. Laura's right. It's mirth. Yay, I got one! <laughs> so purple- Everybody's on the board. <laughs> purple jade is a stone of mirth and happiness. By purifying the aura and dispelling any negative feelings or attitudes, it allows for spontaneous joy of life to fill the soul and spill over to others. Oh, you're really selling it. I love crystals. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the humor evoked by the stone enhances appreciation of the divine order in all things. It's great that you're driving all of this uh, merchant traffic to this website, Lauren. <laughs> the, her capitalization, like, you guys can't see these quotes. It's just amazing. Random words, like divine. Or, <laughs> the only divine that needs a capital is the drag queen. <laughs> <laughs> Question six. Hiddenite is yellow-green. <laughs> it's a thing. <laughs> Hiddenite is the yellow-green to green variety of the silicate sputomeni, and is named for William Earl Hidden, who discovered it in 1879 in Alexander County, North Carolina. He discovered it and then immediately hit him. Yes. <laughs> Hiddenite helps to A. Dissolve literal heart blockage. B. Dissolve metaphorical heart blockage. <laughs> C. Dissolve anger. D. Dissolve other minerals. Ashlyn. Metaphorical heart blockage. Wait, no, literal heart blockage. Shit. Yeah. I don't know. Ah. I wanted all of the above here. Yeah. Metaphorical heart blockage. Jim? I'm going to go with literal heart Damn blockage. Laura, going to cover the spread? Oh, wait, there's four of them. I want to go with literal heart blockage, too. Scott? I was thinking metaphorical heart blockage just because it's so absurd. Uh, but I'd like to uh, pull the audience because I really have no idea. Yeah. Let's go with what Mark Forheim says, <laughs> which was the uh, dissolves other anger. Anger. We've got metaphorical heart blockage. Oh, yeah! <laughs> I should have went with my gut. <laughs> Carrying hidden night awakens and attracts true love in the earthly sense, as well as spiritual twin soul love. It provides a constant pulse of loving heart energy, is a great gift to oneself and partner if love has gone stale in a relationship, to help dissolve blockages in both hearts. Uh, wow. So uh, you got to lean more towards the bullshit. Mm-hmm. And that's the right answer. Yeah. Yeah. Le- lean in. <laughs> well, no, I don't know. I mean, a literal heart blockage would be... Yeah, I think literal heart yeah. blockage was the more ridiculous answer. That's I was, a good point. I was really well, proud of well, this one. Question seven. Umbalite is a member of the pyrope garnet family. Its name is derived from Tanzania's Umba Valley, the sole source from which it is mined. Umbalite is rare and quite costly, and it ranges in color from a light pinkish rose to pale red violet. With the exception of a lighter color hue, it is closely related to the Umbalite garnet. I don't know why they're not the same thing. (laughs) Umbalite aids in the treatment of A. Foot fungus B. Heart and lung disorders C. Broken bones or D. Acne uh, foot fungus. 
Heart and lung. Broken bones. It's <laughs> <Scott. laughs> what, what's, what's not chosen? Acne. Acne. Acne it is. <laughs> Heart and lung disorder. <laughs> Umbalite garnet is a crystal of emotional healing. It encourages love, kindness, and compassion, and promotes self-worth and owning one's own gifts and abilities. It aids in the treatment of heart and lung disorders and enhances metabolism and healthy sexuality. Especially okay. if you don't have any heart, heart and lung disorder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, it claims that like the literal and the emotional heart are the same thing. Mm-hmm. So, Question 8. Fire agate is a variety of chancellodony, a mineral of the quartz family. It has translucent, deep reddish-brown base with flashes of orange, red, green, and gold that appear as living flames within the gem. Its iridescent colors are caused by light interference on thin layers of iron oxide or limonite crystals within the chancellodony. Fire agate does not again with the does not, help the holder overcome A, sexual imbalance, B, artistic blocks, C, feelings of boredom, or D, performance anxiety. Laura? Some of those go together. Yeah, yeah. Like, three of those four things. Well, maybe all four. No, we're looking for the one it does not. Does not do. The anxiety. It does not help with anxiety. Performance anxiety? Sure. Okay. Ashley? Uh, feelings of boredom. Jim? I'm going to go with B, the art artistic blockages, okay. because all of the other ones, <laughs> be, feelings of boredom, performance, okay. Projecting? Scott? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think feelings of boredom doesn't seem like something that would be addressed in a crystal. It, maybe it's a really interesting crystal. <laughs> Dude, have you been listening to my questions? <laughs> no, there's no... Logic you can apply to these. So, all right, here we go. Doug said boredom. I say boredom. Okay, it does not help the holder overcome performance anxiety. Oh, Laura's making a rally in the back end. I'm failing the audience here. <laughs> it is ideal to banish the stupor of a humdrum routine, and when one is wearing fire agate, it can also stir the emotions of others, sometimes facilitating attraction between mates. Holy shit, is that a sexy stone? <laughs> fire agate can stimulate sexual and physical energy. Very inc- stimulating. <laughs> increasing the stamina and circulation, and is helpful in treating sexual imbalances, including impotence or fear of sexual intimacy. How are you supposed to use that? Yeah, You're not supposed to wear it for more than four hours. (laughs) You need to see a doctor. Go to crystalvaults.com for the rest of the answer. Make sure to use a condom. You don't want the... (laughs) A stone of creativity and expression. Fire fire agate is particularly helpful in overcoming artistic blocks of all kinds. Question nine. Amazonite, also called Amazon Jade or Amazon Stone, is a green to blue-green variety of mercuriline, a feldspar mineral that forms in crystals or in masses. It ranges in hue from bright green to paler shades of turquoise, sometimes with white, yellow, or gray portions, and can be translucent to opaque. Amazonite protects against A. Electronic interference B. Bullies <laughs> C. C. Self-harm or D. Certain varieties of fruit flies Certain varieties, not all of them. No. So if you still see some, it's just not those kind that it protects yeah, Only the again. ones from the Amazon. Ashlyn? Electronic interference seems like a thing that they haven't covered enough yet. Okay. Jem? Oh, jeez. Bullies. Like, what? How <laughs> would it do that? Just throw it at the bully. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's a particularly the short stone. It's possible yeah. use for any of these items oh, so oh, far. A bully is just a friend you haven't shared Amazonite with yet. <laughs> um... <laughs> 
Well, what was C again? Self-harm. I feel like they probably wouldn't phrase it that way, but I'm going to go with C. Laura? Oh, I just want to pick one of the ridiculous ones. D was ridiculous, right? Well, it was D? certain varieties of fruit flies. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Scott? Uh, I was thinking self-harm. That seemed like something they would want to market to okay. audience. Well, that gives us a spread, so. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, I have consensus in that they're silent. So. <laughs> As in, one person said K. <laughs> so I'll pick C, so far. A, electronic interference. Oh. That's like so easily falsifiable. <laughs> yeah, and your point? Yeah. <laughs> if you're buying crystals, you're not doing something. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Amazonite. <laughs> I was proud of that. <laughs> I put that in for you. <laughs> Amazonite is a barrier filter crystal that blocks geopathic stress, absorbs microwaves and cell phone emanations, and protects against electromagnetic pollution. Place it near computers and other electronics, or tape it to your cell phone. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, no, 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 hold on. That wouldn't help with interference. That would make interference worse if it's absorbing all of the... (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm crying. (laughs) Question 10. Heliodor is the yellow variety of the beryl family, generally referring to the greenish-yellow crystal, but includes all yellow, yellow yellow-green, light green, and brown beryl. Heliodor helps alleviate A. Irritable bowels B. Irritable stomach C. Irritable nerves or D. Irritable podcasters Irritable itch Who are we at? I don't know. Irritable bowel. Jim? B. Stomach? Yep. Laura? Go with nerves. Irritable nerves? Let's go itch. Hedwig and the angry Heliodor. (laughs) Heliodor is a hope stone, alleviating irritability and nervousness. Irritable nerves. (laughs) And providing relief from heavy burdens and immense pressure. It brings stability and optimism. All right, Laura wins this round. (laughs) With four points. The audience got one. (laughs) Jem had three, and Ashlyn had three, Laura had four, and the audience had one. I'm kind of glad we got that little score. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Scott. So we only have one more quiz to go. Yep. Laura is lucky last, and we need one more volunteer from the crowd. Is this Dave volunteering himself? No. <laughs> He's standing up. Let's go. If you want to know, the the quiz is about historical food guides and dietary recommendations. Ooh, Not old historical, like recent history. So the 70s Canada Food Guide? Uh, we're going like first half of the 20th century. Okay. More so, or less. No pyramids. No pyramids. No, no. We're talking about like Canadian American um, food recommendations, 20th century. Uh, yeah. Anywhere in the 20th century. And awesome. our audience delegate uh, this round is Dave. Folks okay. may remember him from other podcasts, usually when there's a movie involved. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this one should be pretty quick and simple. The first official Canadian food guide had this number of food groups. A, four, B, six, 
Horse C, seven. Let's start with uh, Lauren, and then we'll go around. Seven. Okay. Six. Six. Four. Yeah, I don't. I, I think I think mm-hmm. so. lower lower sooner is a good. Uh, I just think like wet hot fire. But maybe it's a trick. Maybe it's always been four. <laughs> well, didn't like wasn't it five at one point because you had the other that you're not supposed to eat? <laughs> yeah, cookies and cakes. Yeah. Okay, so what are we going four. with? You're going with four? four? Okay, four. the correct answer is B, six. The food groups were, so that is Ashlyn and Jem, mm-hmm. and the food groups were milk, fruits, vegetables, cereals and bread, meat, fish, etc., and eggs. Interesting. <laughs> eggs got its own food group. Oh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Question two. What was the official name of this food guide? A, the basic six. B, health protective foods. C, Canada's official food rules. Ashlyn. <laughs> like your eyebrow raise there. Um, the basic six sounds good, but I feel like... So, sorry, what year was this again? This is just... I haven't said a year. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is the first iteration of Canada's... Food guide, food recommendation. So yeah, thing. I think it's like Canada's official food rules. That sounds like very official government. <laughs> Big Brother's food. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's say the basic six, I guess. Okay. Sounds like a really boring Tarantino movie. Yeah. <laughs> basic, basic six sounds too modern and hip, though. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the other one? It was the basic six health protective foods. Canada's official food rules. Health protective foods. Okay. Audience? I think health protective food sounds way too modern. Food rules. Um, hmm? Food rules. Yeah. It's so authoritarian. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it's Canada. It's, it's Canada's official food rules. Oh, yeah. 1942. <laughs> well, um, during the war. We had to have yeah. <laughs> um, Health protective foods was the subtitle oh. of, of that. Oh. Oh. <laughs> so very close for that. <laughs> very close, but I put that in there on purpose. <laughs> you mix. Yes. All right. In the first official USDA American food guidelines, which food had its own food group? A. Butter. <laughs> B. Eggs. C. Cheese. Ooh. What? Gem first. So, butter or eggs, eggs or cheese. Or cheese. Which oh, part God. of the food group? That's super weird. I would definitely choose cheese. Uh, <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I don't need eggs. Should have seen eggs. how excited um, he got over a Costco coupon for cheese. Oh God! <laughs> it's Balderson's double smoked <laughs> cheddar is amazing. Answer the question. Okay. Um, so we've already done. We already did eggs as their own separate food group. Maybe. Canada and the U.S. copied each other or something. Butter seems a little much that it would be its own food group, especially since you put it on anything. You put it on everything anyway, so why would you even need to be told? Uh, let's go with cheese. Cheese is weird, though, because it, like the, there's been a huge uptick recently in cheese being, as we've discussed on the podcast, cheese being pushed in the U.S. Uh, I'll go with cheese, whatever. Okay. Eggs. Eggs. Ashland. I'm torn between eggs and cheese. Uh, Have an omelet. Yeah. <laughs> Eggs, as we said, was mentioned before, but maybe she didn't mean to tell us before what the groups were. No. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go with eggs. Audience, Dave? Cheese. Eggs. 
Eggs. Eggs. This is America. The other one was Canadian. This one is America. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I just can't see them really. Wisconsin is in America. <laughs> yeah, but I can't see them dividing butter and cheese into a separate category. But that's but kind of enzymes. ridiculous. Well, well, I think so. I'm gonna go with eggs. You're gonna go with eggs. I'm gonna go with eggs. Okay, it's butter. What? Wow. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> lubrication. <laughs> yep, it is butter. Uh, so that was the seventh food group of the first USDA food guidelines. Wow. Two teaspoons or more a day is what they're recommended. In Canada, however, in Canada, butter was included in the bread group. What? <laughs> okay, so, point of order. Did they ever... Have they ever seen a butter? Well, Do they know what a butter? The assumption would be that you're just going to put the butter on the bread. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, that's probably the assumption there. Like I can't. But when you're looking at your food group, you're like, okay, oh, I need one more thing for my for my bread food group. Should I have bread? No, I'll have butter instead. <laughs> I don't care that it's made of milk. The transitive properties of butter. Okay, so nothing on that one. Okay, number four. The idea of meatless Mondays originated in public health efforts during which period? A. World War One. B. The Great Depression. C. World War Two. World War One. Okay. World War Two. Okay. I know it was one of the world wars. Three. We're starting it next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, let's go with World War One at the risk of giving Ashland an even bigger lead. One. <laughs> we get a vote. So one. hands up for one. Hands up for two. two. It is. Okay. Okay. It was World War One. So oh. Lauren and Jem get a point. Yeah. Uh, meat was reserved for the troops, and so alternatives like cottage cheese and legumes were highly encouraged on a lot of propaganda posters. The implementation of structured food guide systems in both Canada and the U.S. were formally implemented for which primary reason? A. Prevent prevalence of newly discovered chronic diseases. B. Improve numbers of people fit for military service. C. Improve dietary balance during wartime rations. Improve the number of people who could go into military service. Okay. Jam? I concur. Okay. Yep. Okay. Audience? Well, if they're both kind of evil. We got a consensus. I'm going to go see. We see. Okay, audience gets it. It was C. So the primary driving reason was to help the population stay well nourished during times where rationing of staple foods, and particularly the primary reason was to improve the dietary balance of the public and make sure that malnourishment didn't take over when the best foods were being shipped overseas. A secondary and very closely related reason is that they wanted to make sure that they had a well-nourished public so that they could keep fighting the war. <laughs> so that's, uh, yeah. So C, but also A? Well, C, but also B, but the primary okay. reason, if you look it up on the websites, was to improve the health of the public during ration times. Okay. Number six. From 1942 to 1977, which one vegetable was specifically recommended as required for a healthy diet? And this does not have options, okay? So everybody oh. just list one. Gem first now. What, uh, which what were the years? One from 1942 to 1977... And the food guide started in 42, the food rules. Which one vegetable was specifically recommended as required for a healthy diet? As required for a healthy diet. So I guess one of the considerations here is it's probably something that people would not want to eat if the government weren't telling them to eat it. 
I'm going to go with cabbage. Okay, cabbage, spinach. Some, something cruciferous. Okay, spinach, cabbage, spinach, mm. Ashlyn. So, yeah, my first thought was cabbage also, but then I'm thinking the government usually has a stake in these things, so, like, maybe corn, because the government has pushed corn on the U.S. population forever. But I remember Laura telling me once, like, very, very vehemently, corn is a grain, Ashlyn. <laughs> <laughs> It's a whole grain. <laughs> uh, and then there's like broccoli, which is always like the healthy vegetable. Uh, it's very closely related to cabbage. Yeah, I'm going to go with broccoli just so I'm not the same as Jim. Okay, so we have cabbage, spinach, broccoli, and audience. What do you say? Potatoes. I'm thinking potatoes. Just the sheer prevalence of meat and potatoes being a thing in the yeah. 50s, 60s. Yeah. Potatoes? It was potatoes! Oh, no. That's hardly a vegetable. <laughs> I concur. I've argued that for years. something you get out of BI. <laughs> yes. And Idaho. So for 35 years, potatoes were listed as a daily vegetable, and other vegetables were grouped into things like green vegetables, yellow vegetables, in addition to potatoes. And if you've seen those new those new commercials that are playing now, it's uh, they're trying to do that again. Yes, I was thinking with the the typo with the iron content of spinach. The oh, the, that's why Popeye was <laughs> the mm-hmm. thing. That mm-hmm. was earlier. Yeah. Yes, no, that was really good thinking. But uh, no, it was just the potato was always included as the only specific vegetable. Well, there was no horrible cartoon about a. Uh, about a potato-eating person, so all my information comes from cartoons. Okay. So from the first USDA food recommendations that were published in 1916, the consumption of sugars was recommended to be about 10% of calories, a very similar recommendation supported by Health Canada and the World Health Organization today. Is this true or false? True. Okay. Sugars, not carbs. I'm seeing. (laughs) Ah, False. Gotta be more than that. I'll also say false. A hundred years of advertising, the, uh, suggesting the same amount of sugar. Well, maybe it's, maybe it changed in between. Well, I, just, I, you know. Yeah, I'm just wondering if we yeah. have a good nut cycle. Everything old is new again. That's yeah, false. which is always the I thing. True. <laughs> breaking with the audience. It is true. So, oh. what I will say, when you look back at those first guidelines, it does recommend sugar to be about 10% of the calories. However, it's not the same limiting to 10% it's as we talked about today. It's not at least, <laughs> okay. it's saying approximately. It talks about sugar not as a detriment per se, unless it is taking the place of other healthy foods, which is still true today. Today, the limit at 10% is much more emphasized, but that 10% figure has been around for 100 years, so... Eight questions. I only have nine, so second last one. One of the basic seven food groups from the original uh, American guidelines... Butter. <laughs> ...was butter. Another one of them was oranges, tomatoes, grapefruit, raw cabbage, and salad greens. Ew. Which nutrients were specifically emphasized by this group? Oh, God. Uh, oh, I guess I should give you the options. <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> Just, look, you guys don't have nutrition knowledge like me? Come on. Okay. A, vitamin A, B, vitamin C, or C, folate. <laughs> a, vitamin A, B, okay. vitamin C, C, folate. Oh, which is a B vitamin. <laughs> okay, so there was tomatoes, cabbage. There was oranges, tomatoes, grapefruit, raw cabbage, salad greens. 
Oh, man. Yeah. Sounds like a lovely salad. Uh, <laughs> vitamin C. Okay. Oh, I feel like it should probably be something bitter. I'm not aware of cabbage being high in vitamin C. Me neither, but oranges aren't high in folate as far as, far as I know. Yeah. This guideline could also be wrong. That's very true. Um, (laughs) When did they figure out the folate connection anyway, though? I think that was not... I think it was more recent. Yeah. Do you want the year of this food guide? Sure. Would that help? I've already given my answer, so... Yeah, no. Okay. Yeah, uh, vitamin... A vitamin. Is there a period carrots aren't after in that? There. Carrots aren't in there. Um, not the carrots are. Well, whatever. <laughs> Answer one. the question. C vitamin C. Okay. So B vitamin C. B vitamin C. <laughs> C is vitamin B. Okay. Vitamin C. Lauren A. Okay. A is A. A is A. I had to remember that for yeah. audience. Tautologies are tautological. Vitamin C. Yeah. When down always prevents scurvy. What was the year of the food gun? Nineteen forty-three. Yeah, we're, we're definitely fighting scurvy. So vitamin so C? Okay. It was B, vitamin C. Yay! Now, now, I'm going to put a lot of qualifiers on this. <laughs> so wait, um, I got that one right and the Jeff audience got and right? audience. Yeah, so oh, Lauren is the only one who did not. However... I'm dying here, apparently. <laughs> uh, so, of course, we think oranges, grapefruit, citrus fruits, good source of vitamin C. Absolutely. Raw cruciferous vegetables like cabbage have some vitamin C in them. Tomato has some vitamin C as well. Salad greens do not, actually. Salad greens, especially if you're looking at, like, dark romaine lettuce or red lettuce, actually have more vitamin A than they do have vitamin C. Oranges are a really good source of folate, actually. And dark leafy greens are, too. So depending on what your salad is made out of. And things like potato and strawberries have a lot of vitamin C but are not included in this group. So... Based on the foods, I think they're going for vitamin C, but honestly, their science behind that is not very good. (laughs) But potatoes you don't eat raw, and vitamin C denatures pretty easily with heat, right? Um, It it does, but that doesn't mean that it's all gone, necessarily. Of course, you're supposed to have potatoes with every meal anyway, so... (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, this one one was a hard one, because looking at it going, I see what they're going for, but I think that they're not doing a great job with that. (laughs) But we also have to look at what people were eating at the time and during ration times as well. All right, good. Last question. Starting in the 1960s to 1970s, the focus of nutrition guidelines shifted from A... The emphasis on the importance of milk to the importance of cereals and breads. B, the emphasis on liver to the emphasis on fortified and enriched foods. Or C, the emphasis from minimum consumption targets to overall daily consumption targets. And I think we're starting with Lauren on this one. B. B? Liver, liver used to be the thing, and now it's... Okay. No organ meats. I'm going to go minimums to daily. C. Okay. I'll be honest, I just realized that in about three minutes, Ashlyn is going to ask me what we're talking about next time on the show, and I have no idea. (laughs) So I stopped paying attention. So it's like every other day at home. (laughs) Okay. All right, we're bringing bringing this in. Uh, Yeah, okay, I'll I'll pick A. Okay. (laughs) Whatever that was, that's that's the one that I missed. Okay, you're going to win this anyway, so what's your answer? You can read the options a little bit. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I want to say that that one's like 80s. 60s, 70s sound, that's just wrong. Yeah. So the first one was from milk 
to cereals and breads. Second was from liver to fortified and rich foods. Third one was from minimum consumption to daily consumption targets. I like the change from milk to grains. So let's do that. Okay. The answer was C. The original food guides, when they were put out, were minimum consumption targets and assuming that people would eat more than uh, what was listed on there. And in the 60s and 70s, they switched it to this is what you should eat in a day This there's with maximum targets and that as well. Awesome. All right. So thanks Lauren, for playing my food guide game, guys. <laughs> Lauren got two. Jim got three. Ashlyn got four. And the audience got five. Woo! <laughs> Okay, so because because there were only nine questions there uh, out of ten, we're going to divide all of these answers by nine and then multiply by ten. Oh my god, Jim. Uh, Wait, I can come up with a bonus question if you want. Do it. What's a food? <laughs> What's a food? Well, test our retention from your talk earlier. Because <laughs> otherwise, uh, if, if we don't do that, Laura will have a slight advantage uh, in the scoring at the end because she answered you just ruined her gaming 30, 30 questions instead of uh, 29. Okay, bonus question. In the 1943 Basic 7 Food Guide from the U.S., how many eggs were we supposed to eat in a week? Ooh, in a week. Butter. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it was like two a day, so I'm going to say 14. Okay, 14? Um, I'm going to say, is it whoever gets it right or whoever gets closer or prices right rules? I'm going to go with closer because I'm not giving you guys okay. options. So I'm not going to guess one. Um, <laughs> no, I'm going to guess 15. Oh, you f- Okay, so we have 14, we have 15, Lauren. In a week? In a week. 36. <laughs> 16. 16. Oh, the answer was three to five a week, preferably one a day. So maximum seven. This is ration time, you guys. So I Ashlyn wins with 14 as the closest I answer. I should have with one. All right, so Ashlyn now has five tied with the audience. Yay! 36. Okay, so our final scores are uh, Jim has 14, uh, Lauren has 16, Ashlyn has, oh boy, uh, 17, and uh, Laura has uh, 17. 17, and the audience uh, has more, but they cheated by answering all of the quizzes instead <laughs> of just three of the four. Uh, the audience has 23, but if we, uh, yep, 23, that is 17.25. Oh! The audience wins by a quarter of a point. (laughs) All right, well, thanks for joining us today, everybody. We had a great time. What are we talking about next month, Jeff? <laughs> uh, you know what? Next month, I think we're going to take some listener requests. We've had some uh, requests for topics come in, so I think we'll do a bit of a grab bag. So if there is something that you want to hear us talk about, audience in the room or uh, audience listening to this in a month when it comes out, please let us know. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email at podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. We'd uh, love to hear your suggestions. Awesome job, everybody. Have a good night. You've been listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. If you have any questions or comments, or you'd like to suggest a topic for the show, send us an email at l-u-e-e-podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. If you want to show your support, give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, follow us on Twitter or Facebook, or just share the show with a friend. Our music is produced by the very talented Ian James, and this episode was edited by Lauren Bailey. 